With us being in the gym the past couple weeks, this is a smaller space than our sanctuary, so I just wonder for, for some of you, you know, if we were to take the seating here and apply it to over there, are our normal seats going to be changed? Is everyone going to be sitting closer <laughs> up front? What's it going to be like when we move back? I'm excited to see. There's merits in the back, and merits are never in the back. They're usually in the front. So, who knows what'll happen. It's going to be crazy. All right. Uh, before we get started, uh, Jonathan has been, we've been looking at the theme of Titus that we've discussed and that we've been teaching that we're going to continue to see over and over and over again is that truth cultivates godliness. And a, a phrase that I'll use a lot today is, uh, it's, it's what Paul uses and uh, the, the wording that he uses so often is good doctrine. So good doctrine, the truth, the teachings of scripture, they produce, they cultivate godliness within our lives. So one of the things we see in scripture that we're reminded of in Titus is that truth produces in us, good doctrine produces in us a heart that knows God and knows his love for us as it's manifested to us through Jesus Christ, his son, and Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and ascension. And that love is then made real. The truth, the reality of that love is made real to our hearts and to our minds through the Holy Spirit who's given to us. And so as he writes that truth, as he writes those words in our hearts, it produces within us godliness. And so we see from Titus verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 1 on that, that good doctrine always accords with godliness. And so truth, good doctrine, the teachings of Scripture... It also, it, it, uh, it must produce godliness within our lives. So, doctrine then we see, or the teachings of Scripture, the Word, it's not just an optional accessory to the Christian life, right? It's not something that we can just, just have on the side or just, just a nice little add-on that, that some people worry about and others don't. But rather, what we see in Titus is that good doctrine and growing in the knowledge of the truth is necessary to the it's actually necessary to our joy, to our happiness, to our delight in the Lord. It's necessary to what we believe about how to live in a, in a way that's pleasing to the Lord and how to live in a way that's, that's avoidant of what displeases the Lord or dishonors the Lord. And so it's necessary that we grow in good doctrine. But then we'll often hear, and I remember saying this as a, a young, enthusiastic Christian in college, well, doctrine doesn't matter. What's important is that we just love people. Right? And that's a, that's a, we understand the sentiment, right? What's important is not doctrine, all the stuffy, uh, all the stuff that's just so stuffy, right? Or that, you know, that the, the heady people think about, people argue and fight over. That's not what's most important. What's most important is that we just love one another. Well, that, that's wrong for a couple of reasons, because good doctrine actually teaches what it means to love. God defines love. And apart from good doctrine and growth in good doctrine and theology and truth, we wouldn't know how to love in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. So just a couple examples then. We'll take that. If in our doctrine we believe, in a, in a negative way, that the Lord loves us on the basis of, basis of our own righteousness, on the basis of our performance, on the basis of our morality, then that's what we're going to believe about how God loves, and then that's going to affect our godliness. So if that's how we believe God is towards us, that's how we are going to be towards people. If that's how God loves and God tells us to love, well, then I will love my children, or I'll love the people next to me and the chairs next to me, or I'll love the people at work on the basis of their performance, on how they treat me, right? And it becomes a very legalistic love. However, 
as we grow in good doctrine, if we come to see in the scriptures that God is a God of love who loves us unconditionally, but we get to know that unconditional love because of his conditional love and how he does care about righteousness and holiness, and he does care about sin and will deal with sin, but we see that we get to enjoy that love on the basis of the righteousness of Jesus, of what Jesus has done for us. So we enjoy love by his grace and what he's done for us. Well, then that's going to affect what, how we determine what godliness is, right? So if that God tells us to love, then we're going to love in a way that is gracious, that is kind, that is merciful. We won't love our children. We won't love our coworkers on the basis of how they treat us or their own righteousness. But rather, we will seek to love them in a gracious and kind way because that's what we've seen in the scriptures. That's how we've seen the Lord to be, how the Lord to treat us, who he is. So good doctrine is necessary. And it's, it's important. It's vital to the Christian life. So encouragement. Young people, care about theology. Care about growing in the doctrines of the church and what the church teaches, what we see in the scriptures that the church has laid down, that we get to sit under the teachings of the elders and pastors and all the good books that we, that we read. Young people, if you want to love the people around you well, as you get older and you go off to college or, or get into the workforce, if you want to love and care for the people around you well, that directly correlates with the doctrine that you know, that you grow into. Okay? Adults. Care about theology and growing in your knowledge of the truth and in the word. How you parent, how you, you treat your spouse, how you live in the world with your neighbors or with your coworkers. It is thoroughly and completely influenced by what you know from the scriptures. Amen. The doctrines that you believe and hold to. And, and to you adults in here who are more advanced in years, my goodness, my prayer is that the Lord would, would keep me and preserve me. And may all of our prayer be that what David prays in Psalm 92, 12 through 15, David says this, The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. So even to the adults in the room who might be older in years, now is not the time to start coasting, right? There's no retirement in the Christian faith. But rather may our prayer be that, yes, even in old age, more fruit-bearing, more joy, more contentment, more delight in the Lord that we then want to make known to the people around us. We ought to care about doctrine because doctrine affects our love for the Lord, our knowledge of the Lord. And then how we then live that out. It affects our godliness. So Titus is such an important book for, book for the church because it corrects us whenever we elevate doctrines or, or teachings that we see that are not main things to main level priority. Just last week as, uh, as uh, Jonathan was teaching, we looked at how the, that Paul leaves Titus in Crete to put what is not in order into order. And we asked the question, well, if you were seeing a church that's out of order, what would you do? You know, when, when you get heat going, right? You, you get the facilities up and running. You'd obviously get a cool youth pastor in there and just bring the people, just get flocking in there, right? No, what he immediately first says to do is install elders, appoint elders, right? 
And so Titus is correcting us whenever we elevate things that are not main things to main level priority. But what we see today is Titus, and what's so important from what we see in verses 10 through 16, is Paul is actually going to warn us what we ought to be uh, cautioned against, what are dangers and threats to the church. And one of the things that we see as that's coming, so listen, this is Paul writing to Titus, okay? And Titus is putting into order things that are left out of order. But also, we believe this is the inspired word of God. So if Paul desires that elders be appointed for the health of the church, what does that show about God's desires for the church? And so even as we read this passage today, we are seeing something of God's heart for his people. We are seeing that God is a, has a shepherd's heart for his people, that his people be protected, cared for, built up, and that when dangers arise, there are, there are elders who are in place, that the church is growing up in the doctrine so that they can refuse and rebuke the, the dangerous threats to the church. And so we're seeing even God's heart for his people in what we see today. So let's read Titus 1, 10 through 16, then we'll pray. Titus 1, verse 10. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Let's pray. Most holy God, we thank you for uh, your word. What grace and what mercy that you would cause your works to be remembered and to, to be written down for our benefit, that they would be preserved so that we uh, can come to know you. We thank you that you delight to reveal yourself to your people in the scriptures. Lord God, would you give us grace then to hear well what you would have to say to us today? Would you give us eyes to see more of your glories uh, and who you are as we study from Titus? And Lord God, that you would work in our hearts, uh, that you would bring conviction where we need it, also encouragement where we need it. And ultimately, Lord God, that your Holy Spirit would exalt the name of Jesus in our lives today, that we would see him more clearly. Lord God, we thank you um, for this time that we have together. We pray all of this in your name. Amen. <clears throat> all right, so three points we want to draw out as we work through Titus 1, 10 through 16. Three points. Number one, we want to see the danger that's present here that Paul is warning against. The danger. And that danger is going to come from two places both from outside the walls of the church and from within, okay? Secondly, we want to talk about what actually produces this threat that leads to these dangers. What produces these threats in people? And third, how to protect against it. How do we protect against the dangers that we see here in this passage to the church? So, number one, the danger, both from within and outside. Number two, what produces the threat? And number three, how to protect against it. So, remember, in verse 5, Paul leaves Titus in Crete to appoint elders so that the church would be in right and good order. 
We see in verse 9 why that is, why, one of the reasons at least why it's so important that elders be appointed. Look in verse 9. What are elders to be doing? Elders are to be people who are holding firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also able also to rebuke those who contradict it. So elders are to be installed or appointed in the church so that they can build up the church, encourage the church, so that the church is growing up into uh, the full maturity of Christ Jesus, as we see from passages like Ephesians chapter 4. So the elders are there for the benefit, for the building up of the church, but also elders are to be present so that they can rebuke people whenever, sound, whenever we are out of step with sound doctrine. We're not in accord with sound doctrine. And especially when our godliness is out of accord with that as well. And we see what's going on there in verse 10. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. So here we are, right off the bat, we're seeing why it is that they need to be able to rebuke those who are living contrary or teaching contrary to sound doctrine. It's because there are many. Notice, he doesn't say there are a few or there's, there's one or two, but rather in the culture in which they live, there are many, all right? And what are they? They, one, they are insubordinate, okay? So these are people who are unruly, disobedient. We get the picture that these insubordinate people, these insubordinate false teachers, they are not wanting to submit to the good doctrines of the church. They're not wanting to submit to the truth, but rather they are living disobedient, out of order, with the scriptures, with the word, and what God has revealed therein. Number two, we see that they are empty talkers. Notice empty talkers. Think about that phrase. That's in direct opposition to what the elders, to who the elders are supposed to be. What, what are the elders supposed to be filled with? They're supposed to be filled with grace and truth. Their words are to have meaning that build up, that encourage, that exalt and glorify the name of Jesus. Their words are empty, anything but empty talk. But these false teachers who are coming in, they are empty talkers. Lots of word, but it's all air. There's no life. There's no good there. And third, we see that they are deceivers. So it's not simply that these false teachers, that these dangers that are present to the church, it's not simply that their word that they are teaching is neutral. Right? Rather, they're actually deceiving the body. And they're causing the body to be tempted to go astray. So they're speaking lies to people. Not only that, but look in verse 11. What are these people doing? They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching. So these false teachers are not just kind of out there floating around, just throwing up you know, empty words here and there or deceptions here and there. But rather they are doing teaching. So somehow with whatever's going on in this current situation... These false teachers have gotten to a place of prominence or to a place where, uh, to a position where they're able to be heard by the church. The church is listening to these people. These people are a direct threat to them. All right? They're out front and the church is listening. Because of this, we saw from verse 11, they are upsetting whole families. Remember Jesus in Luke chapter 17. He teaches that <clears throat> if anyone, uh, or it would be better for a person to have a millstone tied around their neck and be tossed into the sea, then they lead any of his people astray. How much more severe for the false teacher that is upsetting whole families and tempting them to go astray. 
The threat that Paul is encouraging Titus to be on guard against by appointing elders, it is dire. This is a, a, a dangerous situation that the church is facing. So these Cretan Christians, they need protection from the threats of false teachers both outside the walls of the church and from within. They are in and around the church. The culture has this persuasive element we see. It has this persuasive element uh, to these people within the church. Notice how they're described in verse 12. These Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And because of this, the, the way that this culture is operating and going about, the church is being tempted by it. They're being tempted by these teachings. They're being tempted by these outside ideologies. But they're also being tempted by their behaviors and how they're living as well. So how does that fit with our context and why is that important to us? So let's talk first about the threat outside the walls of the church, okay? Talk about the threat outside the walls of the church. So well-meaning believers can be tempted by outside ideologies that have grains of truth in what they say, but ultimately can lead us astray when those truths or those words that are being spoken, they hit on our passions and our sensitivities. Two examples. For instance, maybe a believer has right and good sensitivities to racial inequalities that are seen in the world. So certain worldly ideologies can offer grains of truth that might address problems and maybe offers possible solutions. And so the well-meaning believer who sees these inequalities can be tempted to bite, hook, line, and sinker into those ideologies and ultimately be tempted to go astray from the Lord and live out of line with good doctrine or live out of line with living in accord with godliness. I, on, the, on the flip side of things, we might see this as well, and, and we, uh, this might bring maybe a little more true to some of us, is we can also be tempted, well-meaning believers can also be tempted by the philosophers of our day and age, by outside ideologies, people who are, who are preaching and teaching against maybe uh, impingements of human freedoms that we're seeing. So as the culture is maybe attacking rights or freedoms to worship or freedoms of speech, we see maybe worldly philosophers rising up against that and speaking against it. But we also see at the same time, maybe they're saying right things and they have bits and pieces of the truth, but maybe their attitudes are out of accord with godliness. Maybe they're harsh. Maybe they're not loving. Maybe they're not kind. And so well-meaning believers can be tempted to see that, to see the results that are happening, and bite all on that, right? And be tempted to be led astray. So maybe they're holding to good doctrine, but maybe all of a sudden their godliness is out of whack. And so something must be wrong with the doctrine there. And so we can be tempted, well-meaning believers can be tempted by outside ideologies. So rather what needs to happen then, and this is why scripture is so important, and that we have elders who are able to teach us well, is every thought, Paul says this in the letter to the Corinthians, every thought, every ideology must be taken captive must be filtered through the word of God. Amen. God's word is, the, is sufficient for life and for godliness. There we see what it looks like to live in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. There we see what it looks like to live in a way that is actually good for the world, whether they know it or not. And so every ideology that we hear out there, no matter how attractive or unattractive it may be to us, it must be filtered through the word of God. It must be taken captive and brought to the scriptures. 
And that's where we have to think about it. That's where we need to pray for discernment and wisdom to rightly think through those. But the threat is not just from the outside. The threat is also from the inside. So notice how these false teachers are described. They're described as the circumcision party. So they're probably Jews who have come into the church but are holding on to Jewish traditions. That would make them familiar with the scriptures, which would make them sound like they know what they're talking about. They're teaching, so they're in some type of position of prominence. They have some type of audience with the church. And according to verse 16, they profess to know God. All right? Do you see how dangerous that is? And those type of people can slip into the church. However, according to verse 16, while they profess to know God, they deny him by their works. Good doctrine accords with godliness. Remember, Jesus in Matthew 7, verse 15 and following says this. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. We see this in, the, in a letter to the Galatians. As the Judaizers come into the church of Galatia, and they are wreaking havoc. Paul says that they come teaching a false gospel, a distorted gospel, that actually is no gospel at all. Remember, they know the Old Testament scriptures. They might sound like they know what they're talking about. However, these Judaizers come in and they begin preaching Jesus plus something else. And anytime you hear that, that's a false gospel that's no gospel at all. Gospel at all. They begin teaching to the church of Galatia. If you want to be part of the covenant family of God, you need Jesus plus circumcision. You need Jesus plus Sabbath regulations. You need Jesus plus the dietary laws and customs of the Old Testament scriptures. If you want to be part of God's covenant family. What makes these types of people so dangerous then is that they look and sound so much like us. However, they deny them by their works. We will know them by their fruit. They profess bits and pieces of the truth, yet they are distorted in their core. They're such a threat to the church because they look so much like us. So, how then do we? How then does this this uh, this danger, these threats? How do they even arise? How are they produced within us? How are they produced within people who profess to know God and know the Scriptures? How does that actually come about? I think two things that we see from verses 10 through 16 is this. Religion, and at least religion in the negative sense of the word, there's definitely a way in which religion is a, a good and positive word, but we want to use it in the negative sense of the word today. So meaning where we try to relate to God or gain access to God through our religious performance. Okay, So that's what I'm meaning by that. So one, religion, and two, pleasure. So how do these threats arise? How are these threats produced in people? Religion and pleasure. The story of the prodigal son is such a good template for this. Okay, so, so consider the prodigal son who goes astray. The first one goes astray. The younger goes astray from the father by taking all of his riches and he squanders it in pursuit of pleasure. But he's not the only son that's rebelled against the father. The other son has also rebelled against the father, but he does so through his religious performance. 
through his obedience to the Father, through his devotion to the Father. But he does not want the Father. He wants what the Father can offer. And so both sons are living in rebellion, one by seeking pleasure, and the other through religious performance, we'll say, for our purposes today. So let's first talk about religion and where we see that in the passage. So again, these false teachers, they're part of the circumcision party. We see according to verse 14, they are devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands, all right, and the teachings of Scripture. So they look and sound religious. But at the same time, they're seeking pleasure. Look in verse 11. Why are they doing this? Why are they doing what they're doing? They're teaching for shameful gain. Some of your trans shameful game. Game. Uh, some of your translations may actually say monetary value or monetary gain. So they're after pleasure. They're after substance. They're after the things of the world. They sound religious. They look religious. And they might try to relate to God through their religious performances. But what's motivating and what they're after is pleasures of the world. And that's why we get that harsh description of them in verse 12. They are liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And this actually highlights the tendency within us all to either relate to God on the basis of how we are doing, what we can do, or what we cannot do. Or it also highlights the tendency within us to seek to find satisfaction happiness, joy through the pleasures of the world and what the world has to offer. And so I think one of the things that we see as we dig into that is the threat to the church is not just from within over there or outside the walls over there, but the threat and dangers to the church can actually show up by looking in the mirror. Because this is how we are so often tempted to relate to the don't we sometimes drift into thinking that God loves us or doesn't love us based on what we are doing or what we're not doing? Don't we sometimes spend uh, our time finding peace within ourselves by comparing ourselves to the people around us? And maybe we find peace because we're way more religious than the people next to us. We're way more moral, right? Or maybe we actually are finding a lack of peace by comparing ourselves to the people around us. I thought I was good. Man, that person, man, they know the word. They know how to pray. What's that, what is that betraying? That's betraying that we are seeking to relate to the Lord and be right to the Lord on the basis of our religious performance. So maybe we, we're finding discontentment in the Lord. Maybe we're finding discontentment in our union with Christ. And maybe we're seeking pleasures elsewhere. So we come to church, we look religious, but our lives are spent pursuing pleasures. And maybe we're seeking to derive happiness and joy and peace through the praise and affirmation that might come whenever we join in that circle that's gossiping about a group of people, right? Gossip always tends to be affirming to us, right? And we get accepted into that cool crowd that's talking about the other people. Or maybe we're discontent in our union with Christ, and so we give our eyes over to lust of the flesh, over to looking at and thinking about things that are displeasing to the Lord, things that are immoral. Maybe we're, we're finding our peace, our joy in life through what we can do in the gym and what we see in the mirror. Or maybe what's actually seen is that 
we don't feel any peace by what we see when we look in the mirror, which then betrays the fact that we're still looking for our satisfaction, our wholeness in life through the things the world has to offer. Or maybe we find our peace whenever our kids are doing well, whenever they're making the good grades, when they're behaving and not embarrassing, or when they're getting invited to be on the all-star team, right? Or whenever they're at least doing better than the people next to us, right? Which again betrays the fact that we can, also, we can so often be prone to wander and seeking life through what the world has to offer. Sometimes we actually see a weird mixture of this. So we can actually be identified as lazy gluttons as well. We know a little bit about truth and good doctrine. And because maybe we know things like, well, for those who are in Christ Jesus, you'll never be taken out of his hand. So maybe because we hold to that doctrine that the Lord preserves and keeps his people, that maybe we then go and live however we want all the time. We go seek whatever pleasures we want. Well, there's grace. The Lord preserves and keeps his people. And there will always be grace when I run back to the Lord. And so we don't actually care to grow in good doctrine. We leave the doctrines and theology of the church to the experts, the so-called experts of the church. We don't need to grow in that. We don't need to, to know more about the Lord. I know what I need to know. I'm safe. Now I'll do what I want. And so we can actually look so much like what is described as false teachers and dangers and threats to the church in Titus 1, 10 through 16. And so the threat isn't just out there. Threats to the health of the church, they actually show up when we look in the mirror. This ought to be a sobering reminder to us of our own weaknesses. Amen. Our own weaknesses, our own just struggles and inadequacies to live in a way that is faithful and honoring to the Lord in all that we do. And then also, it needs to be a sobering reminder of how much we need the Lord. So the third thing we want to talk about. We see the dangers from outside and within. You see how this, this, these threats are produced within us through religion and pleasure. So then how do we protect against that? How do we protect against that for the sake of the church? How do we protect, protect against that for the sake of us as individuals that make up the church? I think this passage gives us the God-prescribed armor against it and also uh, the medicine that we find uh, to treat this whenever we see it in our lives. It's this, elders and the good doctrine itself. Elders and the good doctrine itself. So what are the elders to be doing? The elders are to be people who are so given over to the word of the Lord and growing in their knowledge of the Lord that they are able to build up the church so that, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, that we, as we submit to the word and the teaching of the elders, we are all growing up to be faithful ministers in the Lord. Glorifying him and honoring him in all that we do. So that as Paul in Colossians chapter 2, as he warns against the philosophies of the day and age in which he lived, we can also be warned and cautioned and strengthened against the philosophies of our day and age as we are rooted and anchored in the word of God, in the love of God, in the truths of the gospel. So that as the storms of the ideologies of this world do not rock us, do not shake us, but rather we are rooted in the Lord. So as we have elders and, and sit under the teaching of elders who are able to build up the church, the church is becoming healthy. 
We are finding an armor against those types of things, against the ideology of this world, and against the threats that can come within us as individuals. And what are they doing? They're teaching, they're giving the church the good doctrine. And the doctrine itself becomes armor against those ideologies. The doctrine itself becomes protection and medicine whenever we find within our hearts a desire to relate to the Lord and go to the Lord through religion. Or a desire to find life through pleasures and satisfaction through pleasures. So let's talk about that a little bit more. Notice what the elders are to do. The elders in verse, let's see, verse 2. They are to silence these, I'm sorry, verse 12, not verse 2. Ah, no it's not, it's verse 11. Okay, I know numbers, don't worry. Okay. <laughs> verse 11. The elders are to silence these false teachers. Now, that doesn't mean they go slap some duct tape on them. All right? It doesn't mean that their mouths are literally shut up. But rather, it means that every ideology, every teaching that they're bring, bringing to the table and bringing to people that's the danger to the church, it is being disproven. It's being shown to be out of accord with God's word. It's being shown to be illogical. All right? They're able to refute these false teachings because they have a knowledge, a growing knowledge of good doctrine of the truth in the Lord. Also, the second thing that these elders are to do is they are to rebuke sharply. We see this in verse 13. They are to rebuke sharply those who are doing this false teaching. So, the teachings that these people are, are bringing to the church, that they're causing these threats to the church, uh, it's not just to be ignored or, or tucked under the rug. Right? Or, or maybe because of fear of confrontation or upsetting people, we just avoid bringing that up. No, Paul is saying rebuke sharply these false teachings that the church is hearing, right? That the church is being threatened by. And so one of the things that we see is as we see the elders doing this, as we see the elders growing and building up the body, we see that we ourselves are growing up to be these faithful ministers who can do the exact same thing, all right? As we submit to the teachings of the elders and the word and growing in good doctrine, we can be people who rightly see what is false teaching and, and can correct it and can disprove it and give a good defense and all humility and grace for the gospel. Give a good defense for the teachings of scripture. But we need to keep this in mind. Look at the motivation that's there. All right, before you get too excited to go rebuke the people around you, okay? <laughs> Notice the motivation in verse 13. This testimony is true, therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in faith. Uh, Newton, in one of his letters, he writes on confrontation and when there's controversies in the church, and he's writing to someone who wants to confront someone for, for their false teaching, for where they are, are erring in the faith. And he writes to him this, As to your opponent, I wish that before you set pen to paper against him, and during the whole time you are preparing your answer, you may commend him by earnest prayer to the Lord's teaching and blessing. This practice will have a direct tendency to conciliate your heart to love and pity him. And such a disposition will have a good influence upon every page you write. The Lord loves him. And bears with him. Therefore you must not despise him. Or treat him harshly. The Lord bears with you likewise. And expect that you should show tenderness to others. From a sense of the much forgiveness you need yourself. 
In a little while you will meet in heaven. He will then be dearer to you than the nearest friend you have on earth is to you now. What's astounding about this passage is Paul is calling for these false teachers to be silenced and rebuked sharply. What's astounding is that Paul even still has their ultimate good in mind. And what's their ultimate good? That they be right with the Lord. That they may be in sound faith in accordance with good doctrine and godliness. And so this actually becomes the great Christian motivation for all confrontation. This needs to be the great Christian motivation for all confrontation. That we seek to confront as the Lord Jesus has confronted us in our sin. With a heart for them. With a heart that is filled with affection and prayer for the people who are even, even dangers and threats to the church. Because we, we see ourselves that apart from Christ Jesus, we are unfit for any good work. Apart from Christ Jesus, none of us does good. No one is righteous. No one seeks after the Lord. Apart from Jesus, we are all dead in our trespasses and sins. And we live in accordance with our thoughts about the world. We live in accordance with our desires for pleasures and satisfaction. We live in accordance with the passions of our flesh, apart from Jesus. But we, as all we deserve is wrath, all we deserve is judgment, Jesus comes and he loves. He loves the people who are hostile in mind to him. He loves those who are described as children of wrath. But he doesn't ignore the sin. He doesn't ignore. Jesus becomes to us grace and truth. And so for his people, Jesus comes to take upon himself, himself our sin that is fully and justly deserving of God's judgment so that we could be reconciled to him. That is how Jesus confronts us in our sin. He confronts us in a way that leads us to eternal life. So surely... The great Christian motivation ought to be the gospel and seeing how Jesus has treated us. So that as we encounter false teachers who are legitimate dangers and threats to the church, we surely silence. And we want them to be rebuked sharply. But we want it so that they might be reconciled to the Lord. That they may be sound in the faith. That they may be in right standing with God. That has to be our motivation in all that we do. What greater protection against false doctrine is there than seeing Jesus, his life, and his works, and what he does on the cross, and what he accomplishes for us? What greater protection is there against false doctrines than that? What greater protection is there than seeing the realities of of a triune God who has loved us when we were sinners and his enemies. To then go and love our enemies. To go and love those who are threats to the people of God. Because God loved us when we were his enemies. What greater motivation and protection is there? So as we find within ourselves a tendency to go to the Lord based on our religious performance or to be chasing after pleasures, guess what we have? 
the good doctrine of the Christian faith that protects us against it? Why would I try and relate to the Lord on the basis of what I can and cannot do when Jesus is righteous and perfect and that righteousness can be credited to my account through faith in Him? What, what greater medicine is there for me when I, who am so prone to wander, can chase after fleshly passions and pursuit than seeing how much He has loved me? And so, for the church in Crete, for the people that Titus is ministering to, the great armor against these false doctrines and the great medicine that protects them and keeps them from going after all of this and going astray is the gospel itself. It's the gospel itself. What the elders are teaching is they are teaching and exalting Jesus. So, questions for us to think of as we go. Are you a person who is characterized by living in accordance with good doctrine? Or are you wishy-washy? You will struggle to live a godly life if that's the case. Are you a person that's holding up good doctrine, but you lack humility, grace, kindness, and gentleness towards people around you? Especially those who are coming up in opposition against you? If that's you, you either have some doctrines that need to be corrected, or you need to press down deeper into the doctrine you profess to believe in. You need more of the gospel. You need more of the realities of who Jesus is and what he's done for you, working in your heart. May we then, as Edgewood Baptist Church, as we live and conduct ourselves within the body and in the world, may we pray for grace to walk in humility, to walk in kindness, to walk in loving gentleness towards others because we have seen Jesus be that way towards us because of what he has accomplished for us and the love that we see gloriously displayed on the cross. Amen. So if there are any here today, if you don't know Jesus, today is the day of salvation for you. Amen. Sin leads to no ultimate pleasures and joy and happiness in life, and it only leads to death and ultimately judgment. Life, true, abundant life is offered and seen in Jesus, and Jesus delights to save his enemies. He delights to take those who are in opposition to him and make them his brothers and sisters and bring them to the Father and say, hey, these are those who I've saved. So that's my prayer for you today. Uh, let's pray, and we will close our time together in song. Most holy God, I pray that you would, for those of us who are believers, that you would convict us, or maybe we are not holding to good doctrine, or maybe we are holding just loosely onto what's taught in Scripture, maybe out of fear for going against what's so often seen in the culture, uh, or maybe out of just fear for offending the people around us. Lord God, that will affect how we live our lives in a negative way. But also, would you convict us where maybe we are holding on to the good doctrines as we see in Scripture, but maybe our lives are not being lived in accordance with godliness. And maybe we are not gracious and humble and gentle towards the people around us. So, Lord God, would you work in all of us, all of us, Lord God, more of your love, more of your truth. Would that work into our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit? producing fruit in Christ's likeness within us.
Lord God, if there are any here today who do not yet know you, would you show them, show them just how meaningless, just the folly of, of living for sin and pleasures of the world, and would you give them grace to put faith and trust in Jesus? So Holy Spirit, would you work in our lives in exactly the places we need it? Would you continue to impress upon our hearts the truths that we see here in Titus chapter 1? We pray all of this in your name. As we close, I couldn't help but think about this last song we're going to sing, Be Thou My Vision, and how well it fits with the sermon that JT just preached, that the Lord preached through him. I just want us to, to look at this before we sing it, to actually know what we're singing about. Verse 1 says, Be Thou My Vision, O Lord of my heart, the Holy Spirit guides our heart. Not be all else to me, save that thou art, thou my best thought, by day or by night. Just as us in the church, every thought that we think about, just as J.T. preached about, it should be about him. It should be about, about his light uh, that he brings, uh, waking or sleeping, that presence in my life. And then that next verse, verse 3, riches I heed not. Just as the Pharisees came and tried to get riches just from preaching God's word, or those of us that tried to, just as J.T. described, try to uh, get self-gained by being a part of a group. Uh, riches I heed not, nor vain give me praise. Thou mine inheritance, now and always. Thou and thou only, first of my heart. High King of heaven, my treasure thou art. That's our goal. And then we close with High King of heaven, my victory won. May I reach heaven's joys, O bright of sun. Heart of my own heart, whatever befall. Still be my vision, O ruler of all. Our ultimate goal is heaven. Amen. And we only get there through Jesus Christ. So let's let's praise him this morning. Let's stand. Be thou my vision.